The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. Invite you to take your Bibles. The book of Acts, again, we're going to look two more weeks. I was hoping to be into Genesis by a couple of weeks ago, but things don't always go according to plan, but that's okay. So this week and next Sunday in this last little passage in the before the first break in the book, in case you're wondering, at the end of verse 7, Luke uses what becomes a section break throughout the book of Acts. And he says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied, and so on. And that phrase, that that statement is used several times in the book of Acts, and it gives us clear breaks in his content. And so we're going to finish to the end of this first section of the book of Acts in chapter 6, and then we're going to go over to Genesis and study there for a while. Let's read together. The Word of God from Acts chapter 5 and verse number 40. The last little sentence in verse 39 and then down to Acts 6 and verse 7. So the last sentence of verse 39 says, So they took his advice, his being Gamaliel and they being the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin took his advice and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set them before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great number, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And we trust God will add blessing to the reading of his word. There is a little yellow note sheet in your bulletin that you can follow along with if you would like to. Uh, if you notice from the bulletin to the note sheet, the title has changed just slightly. This is titled A Christ-Pleasing Church, and it's the first of two parts. What is our goal as a church? What are we aiming at? We want to be a church that pleases the Lord. 
And we also want to be a growing church, like the church in the book of Acts, that was greatly increasing in the word of God and numbers of disciples were multiplied and so on. But we want to be a church that pleases the Lord. That's our primary goal. To focus on growth alone, primarily, is a great mistake. And sadly, many churches have focused too much attention on growth and far less attention on pleasing the Lord Jesus. They may have greatly increased the number of people in the pews, but have they truly pleased the Lord? We want to be a growing church, but far greater than that, we want to be a church that pleases the Lord. In Acts chapter 5 from verse 40 to 6 and verse 7 lays out for us a picture of a church that is firstly dealing with opposition and suffering from outside. It's resolving, secondly, internal problems as they arise. It's setting its priorities correctly. It's resolute in its devotion to prayer and the ministry of the word. And in so doing, it is a church that is pleasing to the Lord. Each of those actions displays an attitude that is Christ-focused and Christ-pleasing. And so he recorded its growth through Luke's hand in chapter 6 and verse 7. And there are some things that we must remember about spiritual, real spiritual growth in a church. First of all, it is entirely God's work. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 3 that Paul planted, Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the increase. Real spiritual growth is never marked by the number of people filling the pews because many of them may remain unconverted and unsaved. Look at some of the mega churches of our day. Sadly, there's no clear gospel. There's no clear call for repentance. There's no insistence on holiness. And yet thousands fill the pews Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. But Acts 6 and verse 7 describes real spiritual growth. It's marked, first of all, by a steady increase in the word of God, meaning the gospel was being spread further and further, sorry, further and further. And the disciples were being taught. Disciples were being taught ever more than before. The number of disciples multiplied greatly, meaning the church gained and increased not merely in attendees to church, but in disciples. A disciple is not only an attendee. A disciple is one who is truly converted to Christ. A disciple is one who is committed to the faith. He's being taught, or he or she are being taught, trained, and their lives are marked by a dramatic change in behavior and attitude. A great many of the priests, thirdly, he noticed there, a great many religious people became obedient to the faith. Real spiritual growth is marked by our continued increasing obedience to the faith. In other words, obedience to the word of God. The sufferings, the evangelism, and the practical love that that church displayed pleased the Lord. Their devotion to prayer and ministry of the word, that pleased the Lord. That pleases the Lord. Their fulfilling of the Great Commission 
pleases the Lord. And for us at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church, whatever else we do or we don't accomplish, we must be a church whose fundamental desire is to please the Lord in every aspect. So if you want to say, what's the one thing, the one main idea of this sermon, this message, it's this. It's to strive to please the Lord in every aspect of church life and allow him at his discretion, in his timing, to give the increase to the church. There's an outline there. We're going to look at three points this morning. Well, two and a half and the other two and a half next Sunday. So it's first of all, joyfully suffering for Christ pleases the Lord. Ceaselessly evangelizing for Christ is pleasing to the Lord. Practically loving, practical love in the church pleases the Lord. And then next week we'll look at devotion to prayer and preaching and the filling of Christ's commission. So first of all, first main point is this, rejoicing over suffering pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. The disciples pleased the Lord in their testimony for him. As you read back through the chapters in 1, 2, 3, and 4, you can see how they stood up and they testified repeatedly to the Lord Jesus Christ, death and resurrection and exaltation. And standing firm, despite the threat of persecution back in chapter 3, and despite the reality of it coming here in chapter 5, it pleased the Lord because they stood firm for the testimony to the truth. The disciples pleased the Lord in their suffering for him. You say, how does that please the Lord? It's suffering for Christ that shows the depth of our personal allegiance to him and the truth of the salvation through faith in him. It shows how much we are committed to it. It shows that Christ is of far higher value to us than the avoidance of pain and suffering. In verse 40, the apostles were beaten. And for years I thought it meant something little tamer, a lot less harsh and severe than what the Romans inflicted in their scourging. But I discovered, did some research this week and discovered that's not the case. They were beaten, and the word means flayed or flogged. And the Jews had a rule that says 40 was the maximum. And so in order to show grace, they took one off and it was 39 stripes. But those 39 stripes were caused with a three strand leather whip. And they studded the end of it with little bits of metal to add weight. So as it came down, it would strike with that much more force. Unlike the pictures of the naval discipline you might see in some old movies where they were held up against a, a grate and flogged on their back. In this case, they were flogged on both back and chest. It would have caused severe blood loss. It would possibly have exposed organs and in some cases even caused death of the one who suffered it. This was a brutal flogging that these men received. Their suffering notice was directly related to witnessing for Christ. You got to remember, they lived in a strongly shame honor culture. A painful public beating and rebuke was of the greatest shame to those men. It was designed to humiliate them and provoke them to obedience to the council by that suffering. But as they suffered, and I'm sure I, I, I often think about this, how would I handle this? How would I endure this? What would I, what would I do in such a situation? But I'm sure as they were there and they were being beaten, they remembered Jesus. 
the founder and perfecter of their faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. Remembering Jesus would have enabled and equipped them to endure and despise their own shame and suffering. Don't know. They, they did not enjoy this. They weren't rejoicing, super excited that they got to suffer for Christ. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Their worthiness was in their unwavering faith and testimony for Christ. Christ allowed them to suffer and bear the same marks and scars of suffering that he forever wears. The scars of the flogging and the cross. These men walking out of the council, probably arm in arm, helping each other along. Leaving a bloody trail behind them. They rejoiced that their suffering for Christ gave them a greater, closer, more distinct identification with Christ their Lord. Christ gave to them and to us an example of how to suffer righteously. Christ warned his disciples, he warned us that suffering for his name would certainly come. In Luke 21:12, he said, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And all of those things that he predicted in Luke 21, 12, they're all steadily, sorry, all steadily fulfilled and answered all through the book of Acts. Rejoicing over suffering displays the reality of our faith in Christ. Being willing to suffer for Christ pleases the Lord. It shows that we would rather endure suffering than deny him. Suffering for Christ is only possible by the way. And it shouldn't be by the way. It's a key point. It's only possible in the power of the Holy Spirit. His strengthening presence enables us to endure. One of my favorite uh, parts of going to Bible college was doing church history. I love particularly the English Reformation. Um, Heather and I are hoping to go there in 2021 for it's her dream vacation. I want to go to all the great spots, uh, particularly Bedford where John Bunyan uh, was imprisoned and ministered. And there's a place called the Lollard Square. I don't know, if Brian, you may remember that place. It's a place in London, I believe, in the middle of a great intersection. There's a big bronze plate set into the ground, into the road. This is right in the middle of a road now. And on that spot, there was a stake set up. That's where they burned the Lollards. You say, what are Lollards? Lollards were men and women and even families that owned not a copy of the Bible, but a page or two pages of the Bible. And if they were caught with it, they would burn the stake for owning a piece of Scripture. And stories are told of these men and women as they were burned and dying for their faith, that many of them were looking up and they were singing hymns as the flames rose up around them. And I'm sure in that moment, as they were singing the hymns, the Spirit of God was just infusing them with grace and strength to endure that moment. And I'm sure as the apostles were stretched out on the floor in front of the Sanhedrin and the whip began to fall down upon their chest and their back, they were remembering the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, why are you so sure of that? Because Peter, as he stood at the foot of his wife's cross and she was dying for the faith, he kept saying over and over and over again, remember the Lord, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. 
Suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ pleases the Lord. Rejoicing over our suffering for Him pleases Him. Suffering for Christ pleases and glorifies Him as the only one who is worth enduring that type of suffering for rather than to deny Him. Suffering for Christ is obedience to Him who called us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and to follow Him even in suffering for Him. Suffering for Christ gains us His blessing. He told the disciples in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now we don't go looking. We do not go out looking for suffering and persecution to prove some kind of point. But when it comes, we're prepared. Someone might ask you, why do we keep talking about that here at Noble Park? Why do we keep bringing up suffering? It's come up a number of times in studying the book of Acts and even in Ephesians. And the reality is that Christ spoke of it a number of times. Paul spoke of his own sufferings in one whole chapter of 2 Corinthians. And it's good for us to stop and consider that brothers and sisters around this world, even today, in fact, more than ever before in the history of the church, men and women are suffering for their faith. And brothers and sisters, I'm convinced, it's coming to our shores and sooner than later. And so we need to be ready to think about how we're going to do it and the goal in what we're going to do. And it's to suffer in such a way that pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be prepared that in following Christ, it has been granted to us, Paul said, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Philippians 1 and verse 29. I want you to imagine your mind's eye, and hear the voice of the Savior. Listen as Christ calls to you and I from the narrow path. He calls us to come and walk with Him. And we hear that voice, and we step in delighting in His company. Who would not want to go and walk the road with Jesus? Christ calls to you and I from the closet to come and commune with Him. Yes, Lord, we say, I will come and I'll kneel quietly and I'll speak with You. Christ calls to you and I from under the yoke and says, Come unto Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. And we say, Yes, Lord, I'll come and I'll walk with You and bear the yoke. Christ calls to you and I from the banquet table. He says, come and feast with me. And we say, oh, Lord, I'm so happy. I'm only too happy to come and sit at the table and feast alongside of you. Enjoy the best meat and the best wine. And Christ calls to you and I from his throne and says, come and sit and reign with me. And we say, oh, Lord. And with much fear and trembling, we edge up and we seat ourselves beside Christ, or rather the Father seats us with Him. But Christ also calls to us from His cross and says, come and follow Me and share My sufferings. What will we say then? How will you respond to that call? 
We're so happy to join with him in all the joys and all the delights of our salvation, all those wonderful blessings that Christ has called us to and granted us to as part of that salvation. But when he calls from the cross and says, come and share my sufferings, does not our great Savior deserve our fellowship in his sufferings? Paul said in Philippians 3.10, and these are words that, Every Christian ought to read and stop and just ponder for a moment. That I may know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection. And get this, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. We're all for being a Christian, aren't we, when it's feasting at the banquet table. We're all for being a Christian when it's spending hours in quiet time in prayer and communion with the Lord. But when the call to come follow me means stooping to pick up a cross and then follow him, it's a whole lot more difficult. And I'm not standing here because I know what that's like. I often in my prayer time plead with the Lord that when suffering comes, he will give me the grace to endure it to bear it for his sake, that I would not dishonor him in any way, shape, or form. But notice also, after they beat them, they charged them, which means they strictly instructed. They tried again to silence these apostles. And surely now, as they stand before the Sanhedrin, and the blood is running down their chest and their backs, and they're moaning and groaning, no doubt, in terrible pain from what they have endured. It was real pain. Don't get some crazy idea in your head that it wasn't. It was painful, and they did suffer. And the Sanhedrin figures they've got them in a weakened spot, and they charge them again. It's the strictest thing they can lay before them. Stop speaking in Jesus' name. And what do we read in the very next verse? They left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, sorry, the next verse Every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They went right back. Did you notice where they went back to? I love it. They're in the temple preaching Christ. The guard comes in, arrests them, puts them in jail. They're in jail overnight. They go into the Sanhedrin. At the end of that time there, they're beaten there. What do they do? Sorry, they're in jail Overnight, the angel sets them free. They go back to the temple courts. They keep preaching. They get taken to the Sanhedrin. They get beaten. They come right out. They go back to the temple courts and they keep preaching. Nothing is going to stop them. Nothing will turn them away from preaching for Jesus Christ. They ceaselessly evangelized for their Lord and that pleases him. Notice they locally evangelized. Yes, the Lord Jesus had sent them and us from Jerusalem to the ends of the world. But that had yet to begin. Another couple chapters. It was in Jerusalem, in the temple, locally, from house to house. Evangelization is a twofold thing. We go out into all the world, but we also go out across the street and over the back fence. Local evangelism or evangelization is far more difficult than global. That may shock you, and you may say, oh, no, that's not true. I sat down with uh, Jim and Jean Gillette when they were here. And we're talking about ministry. And they said, and they said brother, you got a way harder job here in Australia than we have in Uganda and Ireland. But, but, I mean, you could get shot there for doing what you do. 
Yeah, but it's way more difficult where you are. I thought, well, how is that? Evangelizing our neighbors, they know us. They see us. They live beside us. They see all our faults and our floors as surely as we do. Local evangelization requires us to live a consistent, godly life. Yes, so does global, but even more so here because our neighbors can see us and know exactly what's going on in our homes. Evangelization is pleasing to the Lord because it is obedience to his great commission. Notice they also publicly evangelized. It was in the temple courts. They were in the temple courts in Solomon's portico. They were not moved by the beating. They continued unwavering in their commitment to preach Christ. Their refusal to compromise their commitment had an amazing effect. Did you notice in verse 7 what Luke says? Many of the priests, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. How is that? (laughs) Because they were in the temple courts preaching Christ. And no doubt as they're there, the scars are beginning to heal on their chest and their back. And it would have been awkward and difficult for them to move. But they carry on even in their pain preaching Christ. And the priests going back and forth and the temple duties would have seen and heard the message. And a great number of them become obedient to the faith. They publicly evangelized. They were living out their own words. We must obey God rather than men. And they did it by publicly testifying to Jesus Christ in the temple courts. Notice thirdly, they truthfully evangelized. Their testimony, verse 42, was that the Christ is Jesus. Notice the two parts of that. You've got Christ and Jesus, both equally important. First of all, Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed of God who is the prophet of God, the word made flesh. No doubt they repeated many of Jesus' words to the people in the temple courts. He is the anointed of God who is the high priest, the suffering servant who died as a perfect, sinless offering to take away our sin and forever remove God's anger. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed of God, the high priest who lives forever, seated at God's right hand, praying and pleading more grace for us, his disciples, day by day. He is also the anointed of God who is the king. He's not merely the king of the Jews, but he is the king of kings and Lord of lords who is ruling and reigning and is returning to judge the world in perfect justice, condemning those. Sorry, condemning those who have not been saved by God's grace, but saving alive for all eternity those who have believed. They preached that the Christ is Jesus. But they also preached that that Christ is Jesus. He was a man. Jesus of Nazareth, he was the man of God. He was truly man and truly God. He was born of a virgin, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus lived as the carpenter's son for 30 years. He was truly human, suffering pain and tiredness and need and temptation, yet without even the possibility of sin. Jesus as truly man represents us to God as our mediator and armed with all the Old Testament and all the words and works of Jesus, they preached and taught the people that the Christ is Jesus. 
And teaching and preaching the gospel of Christ is only possible again in the power of the Holy Spirit. But evangelizing with the whole truth of the gospel pleases the Lord because it is obedience to His command. Evangelizing with the half of the truth of the gospel does not please the Lord. I've been in churches and sat and just and listened as men stood up Believe in Jesus and everything will be okay. Believe in Jesus and you can be happy. This is the gospel. And I wanted to jump up and shout, this is not the gospel. Every cult out there will tell you something similar. The gospel includes repentance of sin. The gospel includes faith in God. The gospel includes turning away from sin and pleading with God for forgiveness. It's confessing our sin and seeking His forgiveness. Anything less is not the gospel. The gospel includes the blood of Christ that was shed. We live in an age and a world where Christian churches, I'll use Christian in quotation marks, are pushing ever more to push the blood out of their church. It's repulsive to them. But the blood of Christ should be so sweet to us. It's the manner by which we are saved and washed and set free for all eternity. They preach the whole truth of the gospel and it pleased the Lord. It pleased Him because it honors and glorifies Him as the Savior. It pleased the Lord because it displays Christ in His glory to those who were still living in sin and rebellion against Him. It pleases the Lord because it's the only hope that we can offer a world. It's the only real source of joy is faith in God. Notice in verse 42, they also constantly evangelized. They did not cease to teach and preach. They were ready in season and out of season, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 4. They used and found every opportunity to communicate Christ wherever they went. They proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ. The Christ is Jesus. Brothers and sisters, do we not want to be obedient to our Lord? Do we not want to step forward and share our faith with others? Do we not want to display and describe to a watching world all the glories of the one whom we love so much and for so great a reason? How will they hear unless someone is sent to tell them? But God has sent you and I to live amongst them and to share the gospel. And as old St. Augustine said, if necessary, use words. In other words, your life has got to be as much a testimony for Christ as the words coming out of your mouth. What excuse will we give to Christ on that great day of reckoning if we refuse to go? To quote an old Keith Green song, Jesus commands us to go. It should be the exception if we stay. Does that mean we go around the world? Maybe. It might mean you go across the street too. The neighbors in this community need to hear the gospel, to believe. This community, this whole neighborhood has changed. You go knock on doors and you can see there that there are folks there who have never heard the gospel. They have the, the Shinto gods and the other little idols and stuff out front. They never heard the gospel. They need to know that Jesus Christ offers them real hope and real salvation. 
Listen to the voice of Christ calling and sending. He called the disciples together to the mountaintop in Matthew 28. And we, by faith in him, are included in that gathering of his disciples. He tells us all that all authority has been given to him. There is none loftier than Christ, no greater king, no higher throne. And he gives us this assignment and this commission Go into their, sorry, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, to go and preach the gospel, to make disciples of all nations. What will please the Lord? Our obedience to Him will please Him. When we obey Him, who has the greatest and highest authority, we please Him. There is nobody. We can't go to the Lord and say, but yeah, Lord, I know you told me that, but there was someone greater and he said I had to do something else. That's impossible because he said already, I've got all the authority. There is none higher than me. What greater assignment do we have than to preach Christ with our lives, our words? And if it's as simple as handing out a gospel tract, you might be sitting here thinking, I'm not a preacher. How do I do it? Put a gospel tract into someone's hand. That proclaims a message, whether you live it, believe it or not. I think I heard, I told you before the story of Adoniram Judson in working in in, uh, in Burma, but the very south where the Karen people, the Karen folks that come here on Sunday afternoon, they're all they're, their beginnings are with Adoniram Judson back in the 1800s in in Burma, and they used to come over the mountains and they would say, "Do you have a piece of paper with a writing on it that tells us about the one true God and salvation through Him?" They'd already heard bits of the message, and they came looking for a piece of paper, and Adnarm Judson would hand them. They were printing tens of thousands of tracts and pamphlets and Bibles every month and hand them out. They couldn't get rid of them fast enough, and they couldn't print them quick enough to restock his supply. What's the point? God uses this voice or a piece of paper to communicate a message. You might think, I'm so afraid, I don't know what to do, but can you put a piece of paper in someone's hand? You can. A greater assignment do we have than to preach Christ and teach the truth about him, whether it's a Bible study or evangelism. What answer will we give if we delay? What answer will we give if we refuse to speak and to teach and to preach or share the gospel with another? Beloved, the world we live in is lost in hopeless, joyless, trivial existence. And we've been given the goodest, the bestest, the greatest news that brings the purest joy for all peoples. We preach the gospel in obedience to Christ to please him. We teach that Jesus is the Christ to display him in all his glory and that pleases him. We do it only in the power of the Holy Spirit. The third thing I will look at this morning, and we'll, we'll pick it up and finish it next week, but I want to start, is practically loving the church pleases the Lord. We saw that the apostles rejoiced over their sufferings and it pleased the Lord. They ceaselessly evangelized for him and it pleased the Lord. And so practically loving pleases the Lord. Now you go to any commentary you want. And most of your Bibles will probably have a heading over chapter 6. that talks about the institution of deacons or seven chosen to serve or something like that. And for good reason. Acts 6, 1 to 7 is very much about how the church instituted the office of deacons and chose men to fill that role. But as we study it, we can see it's also about the church's love for its own members. 
Having a diaconate is not an end in itself. If we only see that this is a practical development of the church, we'll lose something of great significance. The love motive behind what was going on here. Now, I want to unpack all of the what was actually happening next week, but I want us to see, as we finish today, the love that drove these people to look after and care for one another. You need some background to support to see where did they get it from? They got it from the Lord Jesus. Where else? If you remember John 13, verses 3 to 20, Jesus displayed his love, his practical love for the disciples. He rose from the supper. He laid aside his garments. He took a bowl and he washed their very smelly, very dirty feet. The bowl of water would have been heavy. It would have been back-breaking work. They weren't sitting at a table like you are where they could put their feet out in front of them and Jesus could do it. They were lying on a floor-level table almost, couches, and their feet would have been down low. He would have had gotten right down on his knees and bent over to wash their feet. It would have been back-breaking work. He would have slopped and splashed the dirty water on his lap and his legs. It would have been a wearisome task performed out of love for his friends. It was practical love displayed by the only one of all humankind who had every right to ask, suggest, or command somebody else to do it. He's a king of glory. King of kings and lord of lords. He's the savior of the world. And yet he's the one who rises from supper and goes and washes their feet. There's practical love. The hands that sprinkle galaxies with planets and stars and asteroids and black holes now stoop to wash his friend's feet. The back that would soon be laced and shredded by a Roman scourge, bent and strained to wash their feet. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, having loved his own who were in the world, loved them to the end. Christ displayed for us the heart of love. Even practical love. He also displayed to us and gave us a new commandment in John 13. To love one another as he had loved them and loves us. He also described the great benefit of that love. We will testify to a watching, unbelieving world that we are his disciples when we love one another as Christ loved us. We'll get to it next week. But why was it so critical that they deal with that problem so quickly. What sort of community can talk about the love of God and part of its people are starving because there's an uneven distribution of food? They had to show that practical love for one another, that the love of Christ would be displayed not just to those receiving the food, but also those watching on around them. Remember Matthew 25? In verses 31 to 40, Jesus is describing those he welcomed into his kingdom as those who had practically loved. What were they doing? He talks about those who fed his hungry brothers. He talks about those who clothed his naked brothers and sisters. He talks about those who visited his imprisoned brothers and sisters, who welcomed his estranged brothers and sisters. And he will say, as much as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. That passage is not talking, brothers and sisters, about mercy ministries outside the church. It's talking about brothers and sisters 
loving one another, those in Christ. He's saying we shouldn't do mercy ministries outside the church. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying don't misapply that text. That's not what it's talking about. What's talking about is the church loving itself, looking after itself. Christ set us the perfect example for practical love. He set the example of suffering that we should follow it and please him when we suffered as he suffered. He set the example of evangelizing the lost in public and private. And we please him when we evangelize as he did. But he also set the example for the church as practically loving its own. A diaconate is there to practically love the church by serving it. Remember, as much as you've done to the least of my brethren, you've done it to me. Love must be the motive behind the practical ministry of the deacons, whether you're recognized as a deacon or not. Just a little time out. Elders are not those guys only who have title elder on their jacket. They're those who go around loving and shepherding and ministering the word of God and praying for one another. I'll never forget years ago, sitting in a Sunday school class, 15 years old, and Eric Peterson, who seemed old back then, but he was was nowhere near as old as he is today, looked at us and said, boys, because it was an all-guys class, he said, boys, you will do the work of an elder long before you are recognized as an elder. Men, women, the work of a deacon is done whether or not you're recognized as such. But the motive of love must be behind it. And I was so tempted just to dive into all the practicalities. I actually had my outline partly worked out. I actually got it in the back of my Bible here for that last little bit. But I thought, you know what, if, if we don't get the idea of what drives those people to look after each other, we miss the point. And it's possible to go about ministry in the church, whether it's Sunday school or creche or preaching or evangelizing or music or whatever it is, without the motive of love for our brother and sister and love for the Lord, and it's all for nothing. He says, That's, where does it say that in the Bible? I'm so glad you asked. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. What does Paul say? Take your Bibles, flip over there. First Corinthians 13. What does Paul say? By the way, this chapter gets read at weddings all the time. It's got almost nothing to do with marriage. Although it does work, but it's not really what marriage is all about. It's about the church. What's Paul say? If I speak in tongues of men and angels and have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I stand up here and preach like St. Augustine or Calvin or Luther or like George Whitfield, and I don't love the people of God who are sitting in front of me, you may as well get up with a big cymbal and just start smashing on it. That's all it's good for. He says, if I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, if I give everything that I've got to serve the people of God without the love that must be behind it, it's nothing. And I thought, we've got to stop. We've got to look at this. 
And Jesus sets us the perfect example for how to minister the word of God, how to suffer for the truth, and how to practically love. He got down from the table. He took off his outer robes. He wrapped himself in a towel, and he washed his disciples' feet. But he didn't do it with steel wool and boiling hot water. Scrub those stupid disciples' feet. You should have done somebody out there. Why might I have to do this? My dinner's getting cold while I wash their feet. Next guy. He didn't do it like that. Some of you are smiling. I think you're smiling. I hopefully like me. You're smiling because you remember days when you've done what you were supposed to do for the Lord, and it was because you were supposed to do it. Right? Yeah. It's love. He got down from the table in love. You don't see a beautiful analogy of that? He left the heights of glory laid aside his glory for a time. Why? Because he loved. The Bible says he wrapped himself in a towel. Jesus took upon himself the form of a servant. Why? Because he loved. Got down behind their feet and washed them because he loved. And brothers and sisters... We've been called to serve in the church. This church is not a concert hall where you come to sit and listen to great music and mediocre preaching. It's not a shopping mall where you come and you take what you like and you leave what you don't. It's not one of 50 shops where you come and buy one day and you don't like the sales going on or you find something better and go somewhere else. That's not a church. That's not what we are. We're a body of Christ living and working and functioning together as an intricately woven, fastened together body. And the body needs its members. It needs its members together, working together, motivated by love, following Christ's example. That's what set them apart. They dealt with the needs and the, and the problems in their little church. Eight, nine thousand people, whatever it was by this point. They did it motivated by love, remembering the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for them. It's love. It's God's love at work in us, changing us into little Christ. It's love for Christ that must compel you and I to suffer for him. It's love for Christ that must compel you and I to evangelize for him. It's love for our brothers and sisters that must compel us to care for each other in the needs of this church. It's love that must compel us to minister the word of God. It's love that must compel us to gather and pray for each other. It's love that establishes church membership and church discipline. It's love that strives to ensure that we have a safe church. It's love that moves us to care for and about each other. What pleases the Lord most is what we're talking about. Obedience to his command and his great command is to love as I have loved you. You say, you know what? That's great but I just feel like my love is just lagging. How do I develop and increase love for Christ and my brother and sister? That's, that's a good question if you're thinking that. Don't be ashamed if you did think of it because it's a great question and we should answer it and we're going to. 
The answer is Christ. We meditate and we read and we think deeply on Christ. We think about the heights of glory that he left behind to come and die. The glory of his person, his attributes. Think about the selflessness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Meditate and think deeply on that. Read and meditate and think as deeply you can on Christ's love to the unlovely and the unlovable. He saw the leper and he put out his hand and he touched the man. I'm willing, be cleansed, he said. It was the most horrifying thing that he could have done to that society. I could imagine people step back and gasp in horror. What's he doing? That guy's a leper. Jesus in love did the one thing. That man never felt another human touch the whole time he had leprosy. And Jesus in love reached out and touched him. And he cleansed him. If you think that's hard, Jesus reached out to sinful humanity. And he touched it. And he cleansed us of sin. And he washed us that we might be acceptable to his Father. Read and meditate. Think deeply on Christ's love to the unlovable. Read and meditate on Christ's love for those who crucified him. I've nailed, I I shot my thumb with a uh, pneumatic nailer a long time ago. And it hurt, I'll tell you. It was a tiny nail compared to the one they used for Jesus' hands and feet. And they were nailing the hands to the cross What was Jesus saying? I know what I would have been saying, and it wouldn't have been anything nice. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's love, brothers and sisters. You want to know how to develop your love for the Lord Jesus Christ? Meditate and think deeply on the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Meditate and think deeply on his sufferings, the cross, and all that he endured. Read and meditate on the greatness of Christ's love for you. Give thought to your own sinfulness and helplessness and how he loved you and I at our most needful moment. He loved us by supplying our greatest need to rescue us from God's wrath. Give thought to the fact that your brother and sister in Christ are those for whom Christ suffered and died, even the irritating ones. It's true. Like a good family, there are times when we irritate each other. But we need to stop and meditate on Christ's love for the fact that he died for that person. He shed his blood that that person might be your brother and your sister in Christ. Give thought to the truth that your brother and sister are those for whom Christ still prays and still pleads for his father in heaven. Read and meditate on Christ's love for you, for us, and for the lost. Our desire, brothers and sisters, is to be a church that pleases the Lord. Nothing pleases him more than when he sees his children obeying him out of love for him and for each other. I'm going to give you a few moments to stop and think. Some quiet time to just consider what you've heard and pray about it. And then I'll come and close in prayer.
Loving Heavenly Father, we come before you again. And once again, O oh God, we are overwhelmed by your grace that you should love such as us. Father, you found us with our feet sunk in the miry clay. You found us on the pits of sin. And Father, with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, you washed us clean. You gave us a new name. You gave us a home in heaven. You gave us an inheritance beyond imagination. Father, you have called us. The Lord Jesus has called us to come and sit at the banqueting table. He's called us to come into the closet and commune quietly with you and he. He has called us to walk this road, the narrow path, and the long road. Father, we pray that we would stay close to him and walk with him. But Father, we also realize he has called us to pick up a cross and follow him. To die to sin, die to the world, to die to self. And Father, if necessary, to die a suffering death. To testify to who Jesus is. Father, those of us who know the Lord Jesus in this room can testify that he is the loveliest of 10,000 to our souls. There is none that has loved us and cared for us like our Lord Jesus. Father, for the one, two, three, five sitting here in this room who do not know what it is to have the joy of forgiveness, Father, I plead with you. I cry out to you, O God, that you would do a great work in their lives. They would turn towards you in faith and repentance of sin and know what it is to be alive, alive in Christ, dead to sin and alive to God. Father, I ask you that you would do a work in this church, that we would be a church who strives to please you in everything that we do, strives to please you by obedience to your command. And the greatest command is that we would love one another as you have loved us. Father, do the work that only you can do. We ask you these things. Father, we thank you for a wonderful time together in worship. We ask, O oh God, that the Spirit would do his work in each of us this day. Lord, we give thanks and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs>